Be seated. Uncertainty often triggers anxiety and speculation. How do we view and respond to times of uncertainty without panic? The book of Revelation provides a lens to see our present day in light of what is to come. No matter what has happened or will happen, King Jesus always has the last word. Well, we've come to the middle of the book or the letter of Revelation, and the message has been consistent through it all, through the first 10 or 11 chapters, and that is that faithful discipleship is not always easy, but that God is in control, and that ultimately Jesus wins, and the people of God, because they are with Jesus, will be victorious as well. And so, as was said earlier, in many ways, Revelation is a word of encouragement, a word of hope. Yes, we can get bogged down and lost in some of the signs and symbols and miss the message, and that is a crime because the message of Revelation is so important that there is encouragement and there is hope to keep living, living as faithful followers of Jesus. And so today we're going to be in Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11 will be our text today. And at the end of chapter 11, there is a natural break in the text. And so we're going to use that as an opportunity to take a little break. We're going to have a three-week intermission from our Revelation series. And we're going to do a special mini-series called Great. And I think it's going to be great. Because we're going to focus on Commission Sunday and the Great Commission. But not only that, Jesus' great command do you remember when he was asked, what is the greatest of all the commands? And so let's talk about what that is and how that impacts our lives. But not only those two greats, another great, and that is the great paradox. What does it mean to truly have greatness and be great in the kingdom of God? We need to explore that. So at, after today, we're going to take a three-week uh, intermission, and we're going to talk about some great things. And we're going to have Commission Sunday, and then we'll come back to Revelation after that. Let me ask you, have you ever been called to give testimony? Have you ever been called to be a witness on the witness stand? I never have, but I did make it on a jury one time, and after one day of the case and hearing all of the evidence and setting everything up, we came in the next day and the judge completely dismissed the case and let us go home. And on one hand, I was glad, but on the other hand, I was curious what happened. Well, evidently, the star witness for the defense, which also happened to be the defendant's brother, they found out there was a warrant for his arrest. <laughs> and so the judge said, no, we're going to throw the whole thing out. You see, that's a good reminder for us that to be a witness means you have to be credible. You have to be trustworthy. You have to tell the truth. Truthfulness really is the foundation for what it means to be a witness. Well, in our Bible class study on Sunday mornings, we have been talking about the book of Acts. And from the very beginning in chapter 1, maybe you remember that Jesus commands and predicts that the gospel will radiate from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria to the ends of the earth. Do you remember what he says in chapter 1, verse 8? You will be my what? My witnesses. You will bear witness. You will give testimony. 
The world needs to hear the truth. Remember what we said about witnesses. They need to be trustworthy. They need to tell the truth. The world needs to hear the truth about all that you have seen and heard in Christ. And so you will be my witnesses. Now, what probably they didn't know at that time is the circumstances that would in fact propel the gospel out from Jerusalem. It would be persecution. Specifically, it would be the the death of Stephen. And so, Acts chapter 8, verse 1, what happens? This great persecution arises. The church is being persecuted in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. And the church is what? Scattered. Where are they scattered? Throughout Judea and Samaria. And ultimately, to the ends of the earth. And what do they do as they go? As they are scattered. They are witnesses. They fulfill the very thing Jesus said they would do and they would be. They bear witness to what they have seen and heard in Jesus Christ. But it took persecution, didn't it? It took difficult circumstances. That is the nature of being a witness for Christ. Most witnesses are not always wanted. Now, you know, in the case that I was on the jury, that witness was literally wanted from the law. But you know what I mean when I say witnesses aren't wanted. Because witnesses have to tell the truth, sometimes that truth challenges someone else's version of the truth, and it challenges their lifestyle or, or their recounting of the way things went or maybe their future and so sometimes you get pushback on witnesses that's why in the 1970s our country came up with the witness protection program to put people who are trying to tell the truth hopefully into a isolated place where their names are changed they get new IDs they have new jobs new lives for their protection because witnesses are not always wanted But when it comes to witnessing for Christ, that is certainly the case. And it was never really expected or intended to be easy. We've talked about that. In fact, the word in the New Testament for witness is the same word as martyr. To witness is to be martyred. To be martyred is to witness. It's not always easy to tell people the truth. And while we don't live as the first century Christians lived, under under the direct persecution of the Roman Empire, we too are called to be witnesses for Christ. But as we shall see today, there is not a witness protection program for Christians who share the truth about Jesus. So in Revelation chapter 11, verse 1, let's begin. I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshipers. But exclude the outer court, do not measure it, because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months. Remember that number, 42 months. By the way, Revelation chapter 11 has been called the most puzzling chapter in all the Bible. There's a lot going on there. And we're not going to try to unpack all of it, but I hope that you get the heart of the message and that you are inspired, if nothing else, to... Be a witness for Christ in this world. Already in the first two two verses, we have some questions. John is given some directions. Take a measuring stick or a measuring rod, or we might say a measuring tape, and measure the temple. 
Now, wait a second. John is on an isolated island away from Jerusalem. And by the way, if this was written when we think it was written, after 70 AD, the temple in Jerusalem is gone. It has been flattened, destroyed by the Roman Empire. How is John supposed to measure the temple? Well, there are many Jews and also some Christians who believe this idea that God is, in fact, going to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And so they would point to this verse and say, see, he's talking about the literal temple. Well, it's gone. Well, but he's going to build it back. And what's really interesting is if you go to Jerusalem and you go to the Temple Mount, you will see an intersection of the three main world religions. To the Jews, this is the location where Abraham was told to sacrifice his son Isaac. This is the place later where Solomon's glorious temple was built, the temple of God. For Christians, it has all of that old covenant history that leads to the new covenant, but it's also the place where Jesus began to reveal the true nature of the kingdom and that it extends beyond any borders, any walls. And of course, for Muslims who actually own this part of the Temple Mount, which is kind of interesting, it is the third holiest place in the world. And there is a mosque there, and there, of course, the iconic dome of the rock there with the golden dome that you can see in the picture. The three intersections of the world religions. And some believe that events will take place so that Jews are able to access Temple Mount and ultimately rebuild the temple. Maybe on the north side of the Temple Mount, they speculate, so that the Muslim area is included in the outer courts. And what did we just read was going to happen there? The Gentiles would trample there for 42 months. 42 months is three and a half years. We'll come back to that number in just a moment. Now, all of that I just described may happen. It may be possible. Of course, anything is possible with God, but I think maybe there's something else going on here. Like much of Revelation, maybe a literal reading is not what is in order here. Maybe this has nothing to do with the physical temple of God. After all, who did the Apostle Paul say is the temple of God? 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred, and you together are the temple. When God says to measure the temple, I think he's saying to set apart the church. To mark the church as God's designated people for his provision, for his protection, for his calling, for his purpose. I think that's what's happening here. After all, Paul said to the people in Athens in Acts chapter 17 that God does not live in a temple built by human hands. We are the temple of God. God dwells in us. When he says to measure the temple, I think what he's saying is mark out the community of faith. Designate them, consecrate them. They are, you are, we are set apart for the purpose of God. Well, what is that purpose? 
Well, I think we're going to see that purpose is to bear witness to the world about Christ. They need to be set apart. We need to be set apart because we have a different purpose than the world, but also because in that purpose, there will be struggle. It won't be easy. And God wants his people to know that he is with them. That's what the temple is all about, dwelling with God, God's presence there. He wants his people to know that he's with them, that he hasn't deserted them. And so he says, measure it, mark it off, designate it, consecrate it, set it apart. This is God's holy community of faith. I'm with them. So we keep reading in verse 3. And I will appoint my two witnesses. There's that word again, my two witnesses. And they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands, and they, and they stand before the Lord of the earth. And so we see that two witnesses will be appointed, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, which, by the way, is also 42 months, which is also three and a half years. There's that number again. The Gentiles will trample on the holy city for three and a half years. These two witnesses will give testimony for three and a half years. What does that mean? Again, Probably that's not literal, or literal time frame. If you know anything about numbers in the Bible, you know that seven is a very complete number, a very biblical number. What's three and a half? It's half of seven. Is it possible that what he's saying here that, is that all of these things that are going to happen will be for a limited time? The Gentiles, the worldly people, the Roman Empire, if you will, may trample on the holy city, but it won't last. It'll give way to eternity. And my two witnesses will bear witness and testimony to the gospel, but even that will give way to eternity. That's important for us to know because remember what we said about witnesses? They're not always wanted. People don't always want to hear the truth. Notice what the witnesses are wearing. They're wearing sackcloth, a sign of grieving, a sign of bereavement. These witnesses are wearing sackcloth because maybe they are aware of the condition of the world, souls lost apart from Jesus. Maybe they know that life is difficult for them as witnesses of Christ, that there is and will be persecution. But if you keep reading, you see that they testify with power and authority. But the question arises, you probably are already asking, who are these two witnesses? Who are we talking about here? The text gives us a clue in verse 6. They have power to shut up the heavens so that, if, so that it will not rain during the time that they are prophesying. And they have the power to turn the water into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Does any of that sound familiar? If you've been around the Bible at very long at all, if you've studied the Old Testament, maybe something rings a bell there. What prophet was able to keep rain from falling. 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1, Elijah. Remember, there was a famine. They go up on Mount Carmel, the big challenge of the prophets of Baal, this incredible scene, and rain was held back. Well, what prophet or what person of God was able to turn water into blood and call plagues on the earth? That's Moses. So the two witnesses are Elijah and Moses. So does that mean, is Revelation telling us that, that we can look forward to Elijah and Moses showing up someday? 
to bear witness to the truth of God's kingdom? That would be interesting, wouldn't it? Can you imagine Moses showing up today, walking in those doors back there with his staff? (laughs) We would all be like, wait a second, who's this guy? Hey, Moses, we have a dress code here, you know. And by the way, didn't he kill someone? I don't know. Or Elijah, can you imagine if Elijah came back? Well, I don't think we have to worry about that because I don't think, even though the first century audience hearing this would have immediately thought of Elijah and Moses because of the context, I don't necessarily think that is the identity of the two witnesses. You see, we have another hint, another clue in the text. Verse 4, two olive trees and two lampstands. That's what these two witnesses are called. That goes all the way back to Zechariah chapter 4, the same descriptions. And the question is asked then, who are these people? They are the anointed to serve the Lord of all the earth. Even in Revelation itself, within the letter itself, chapter 1 verse 20, lampstand is used to symbolize what? The seven churches of Asia Minor. I think much like the measuring of the temple here refers to the church, I think the two witnesses here refer to the church, God's people. You see, the church has a prophetic voice to be used in the world. After all, isn't that our calling? Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses. I think he's talking about us. We are the two witnesses. We will testify to Christ for a limited time until it gives way to eternity. That's why we're here, to bear witness, to tell the truth, to be a credible witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if that's the case, shouldn't we use our voice? Shouldn't we use the prophetic voice that God has given us in this world? And shouldn't that be a united, unified voice? Do you ever stop and think about how your actions, how your decisions, how your words, how the way you live your life is a witness to the kingdom of God? Do you ever stop and think about how you do relationships, the things that you say, the the decisions you make, how those, in fact, are a testimony to the gospel of Jesus? Do you ever think about that? I mean, we think about the church Corporately, and we kind of separate ourselves from it. Yeah, we're a part of the church, but that's someone else's job to, to be a witness for the world. Well, if you embrace your role in the body of Christ, then your voice matters too. And your voice represents a prophetic voice that God has given his people. And you're either saying truthful, credible, trustworthy things about the gospel, or you're not. Confession time. One time I was in one of our church vans. This was several years ago. Edmund Church of Christ plastered on the side and I honked at someone. I did. I honked at him. And here's the funny part. I wasn't even driving. (laughs) It's, It's a long story. It's a long story for another time. But you know, I think sometimes that's the way we live our lives. We represent the church and not just this congregation, although we do that, but we represent the church globally and sometimes we just live our lives honking at people and road raging over people and saying and doing things that that not only damage our 
character or show our character, they damage the witness for Christ. If our testimony does not reflect the life, the teachings, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, then it does not bear witness to the gospel. A modified version of the gospel that conforms to my pre-existing worldview is not the gospel. My worldview and everything around it must be shaped by the gospel. The church must use its voice not to promote cultural ideas that oppose God's word. At the same time, we must not use our voice to promote calcified tradition. Remember that phrase in our Bible classes earlier this summer? Those traditions that distort God's word. We can't use our voice to promote a political agenda or the economy or anything else. All of those things are shaped by the gospel. And the way we interact with those things and decide about those things and talk about those things should represent the true gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, if a, if a person is giving testimony and they start talking about things unrelated to the case, a good attorney will do what? They will make an objection. That's irrelevant. What they're saying is irrelevant. It has nothing to do with this. I think sometimes that's what we do. We live our lives giving a lot of testimony, but it's irrelevant when it comes to the true gospel of Jesus Christ. The prophetic witness of the church must testify to the gospel. But know this, know this. When the church bears witness to the cross-carrying, self-denying, life-surrendering gospel of Jesus Christ, it will not always be received well. True witnesses are not always wanted. Back in the text, verse 7, what happens to our two witnesses in the text? When the two witnesses have finished telling their message, the beast that comes up from the bottomless pit or the abyss will fight a war against them. He will defeat them and kill them. The bodies of the two witnesses will lie in the street of the great city where the Lord was killed. This city is named Sodom in Egypt, which has a spiritual meaning. Those from every race of people, tribe, language, and nation will look at the bodies of the two witnesses for three and one-half days. There's that number again. And they will refuse to bury them. People who live on the earth will rejoice and be happy because these two are dead. They will send each other gifts because these two prophets brought much suffering to those who live on the earth. So what's going to happen to these two witnesses, which remember we said is God's community of faith, the church? What's going to happen is they will use their prophetic voice, but enemies of the cross of Christ will try to silence them, just like it tried to silence Jesus. They will suffer. They will be killed. They will be left to lie in the street like roadkill as people walk by and point fingers and laugh and celebrate. We don't have to hear from them anymore. It takes my mind back to the Gospels specifically to the Friday, that dark Friday, that disturbing Friday at the place of the skull. When evil is celebrating its apparent victory over the Lamb of God. And for these first century Christians, don't you know that every day was like Friday at Golgotha? The darkness, the difficulty. Every day must have been like that. 
But don't miss the message. Friday gives way to Sunday. Light pierces the darkness. Hopelessness is overcome by assurance. We don't live in the shadow of the cross. We live in the light of the empty tomb. That stone was rolled away. And so go back to the text because there's more to the story. Verse 11. But after three and a half days, there's that number again. God put the breath of life into the two prophets again. They stood on their feet, and everyone who saw them became very afraid. Then the two prophets heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Come up here. And they went up into heaven in a cloud as their enemies watched. Finally, there is justice. There is vindication. More than that, there is life where there once was death. And I love that phrase. If you have a paper Bible, you might underline it. If you're on a device, you might highlight it. That phrase, breath of life. God breathed life into them. Isn't that a great description of what God does? The breath of life. That word breath is the same word for spirit. God's spirit breathed into them life. When we look around us today and we see so much death, and we see so much conflict, and we see so much stress and hardship. We feel overcome by the sadness and the sorrow that is often tethered to all of those things. And we sometimes forget that God is the giver of life. And while we are here, and while we bear witness to the truth and the love of Jesus Christ, we do that in a fallen, broken world. That's why it needs to hear the gospel. So as for God's temple that he has measured, as for the two witnesses he has chosen, and as for the community of faith that he has called out, death has no power. So let God breathe life into you. Maybe into your attitude Maybe you have been walking around with this dark cloud over your head. You just can't seem to find something to give you hope. It's time to let God breathe life into your mindset, into your outlook, into your worldview. Maybe it's into your relationships, your marriage, your family. Let God breathe life into your house, into your life, into your mindset, into your future, into your decisions, into the blessings that God has given you to steward. You see, the message here is not meant to raise anxiety. It is to put it into perspective and give hope. God is the giver of life. Yes, the beast from the abyss will constantly attack. But remember, it will be for a limited time. Three and a half, not seven. And God will give life. So let God do what God does. God is the giver of life. It's, it's kind of interesting. Earlier this week when I was working on this message and I was really contemplating that phrase, breath of life, my smartwatch gave me a, a little message. My smartwatch is usually smarter than me on most days. And it gave me a little buzz and a little message and it just said, breathe. Do you have this on yours? It says breathe. You know, I don't even know how to use this thing. I, it gives me alerts. I don't know. I, uh, I try to send back text messages. And I usually push the wrong thing and it sends back a random message. But it said breathe to me. 
It tells me to breathe. It tells me when to stand up. If I didn't wear this thing, I would just sit down all day, every day, and probably pass out from not breathing. But luckily, it tells me when to stand and when to breathe, and it said, breathe. <laughs> and it was right when I was thinking about that phrase, breath of life, breathe. Sometimes we get so busy, we get so distracted by all the things in the world, we forget to breathe the Spirit of God. And sometimes life gets so difficult, it knocks the wind out of us, it suffocates us, it takes away all hope, and we forget to breathe the Spirit of God. Breathe. Let God breathe life into you. Very quickly, in 2002, maybe you remember the story, I remember it was all over the news, nine miners from Pennsylvania got stuck down in a mine. This picture is actually of the, the TV characters that they made the movie out of, the, the actual miners were a little bit busy at the time to get out the picture and pose for a photo, so we don't have a picture of them down in the mine. But they got stuck down there as water flooded the mine, 50 million gallons of water. One of the miners later said, when I saw the water, he said, I knew it was it. That was it. We were done for. Well, they managed to move around and, and find somewhat of a safe place and try to escape the water. Rescue workers quickly found out what was happening. And the first thing they did was to drill an air pipe down to an opening where they were to try to get them some air because they knew that's what they needed most, that their supply of air would be cut off, their supply of oxygen. So they gave them that air pipe and they were so relieved when they heard clanging on the pipe. They knew that that they were alive, at least some of them were alive, and then they began to try to rescue them, and they got a, a very special drill rig from another state. It took 24 hours to get it there. They started drilling, but then they hit the granite and the drill bit, 1,500-pound drill bit, broke into pieces. They had to pull it up, and as they were pulling it up, the drilling, of course, stopped, and the miners thought they were done for. They thought they'd given up. They're not trying to rescue us anymore. They've given up. They can't, they can't get to us. But of course, they hadn't given up. They were just trying to get the drill bit out and try to re-drill. And finally, they were able to drill the hole. And they brought them up, as you can see in that picture. That's an actual picture. They brought them up to the surface. And as they came up, they breathed in the fresh air. And you know what they were greeted with? There were literally thousands of people there gathered around and as they came up, people were applauding, applauding their safe return to the surface. Listen, God is not going to give up. God will never give up on you. He knows that it's hard to breathe down here. He knows that we are trapped by evil in this world and that we are subject to suffering and injustice and he will plunge into the depths of hell to rescue you, to give you life. And when you finally arrive, you know what will greet you? A great cloud of witnesses celebrating your arrival, the arrival of another witness. Let God breathe life into your world. If we can help you today, please reach out to us. If you want to put on Christ in baptism today, please don't, don't wait. Do that now. You can go to our webpage online. If you're here today, you can go to the parlor. In just a minute when we stand up, two of our shepherds and their wives will be in there. They will encourage you. They will pray for you. You can come down to the front, and we will do the same. There's something we can do. We invite you to come as we stand and sing.
just as I 